Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzek. This week I'm talking with Dr. Erin O'Neill from Sam Houston State University about her research on sexual assault case processing. This is episode 30 of Untenured Tracks. agenda, which is sexual assault case processing. And as I've kind of graduated into an advanced assistant professor, I've dedicated a lot more of my time to helping graduate students find their research voice. And it's been particularly rewarding because so many of the students at Sam Houston State University are interested specifically in sexual assault case processing but in maybe more unique or niche areas. And so I've had um, a lot of awesome opportunities to guide students through that type of work. Mm -hmm. So um, the first kind of paper that I'm really proud of and excited, um, it's currently online first at Justice Quarterly, is a collaborative paper with Katherine Meeker, who is a currently a second year PhD student at SHSU. And this paper looked at police and prosecutorial decision-making in sexual assault cases that involved adolescent complainants. We know a lot about sexual assault case processing generally, and we typically draw from samples that include both adolescents and adults. But research looking specifically at adolescent cases is still in its infancy. And so when Catherine came to me and asked me to kind of pursue this research area, I was really excited. And so she ended up looking at age-specific factors that could potentially influence whether police would make an arrest or whether prosecutors would file charges. So things like whether the victim's parents or caretakers reported on their behalf. Things like whether the case was statutory as opposed to having a kind of bigger age gap and a bigger power dynamic. And this was a really cool project. It was her master's thesis. And so it was really exciting to work with her on that. And let me find the actual paper so I can highlight some of the findings. (laughs) No worries. Um, Pretty much um, her results indicated that the decision to arrest and the decision to file initial charges are influenced by similar factors related to adult case processing. So things like victim cooperation, physical evidence collection, prompt reporting, and then the only real age-specific factor was the victim and suspect age. So arrest was more likely in cases where the, the suspect was older and the victim was younger, which is to be expected. Um, and that was only with arrest decision-making, not prosecutorial decision-making. Okay, so is there is there a range on the the ages uh, which people were arrested? So, like, what's, what's the upper age? Do you know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah. So um, we were limited in terms of victim age because we only collected. So this data were drawn from a large scale policing and prosecuting study in Los Angeles County, mm-hmm. where we collected cases from victims age 12 and older. And so we were limited, which is why we focused particularly on the age of adolescence, because we didn't have any child sexual assault cases. Mm-hmm. And if my memory serves me correctly, I believe that suspects ranged in age from eight years old to 70 in the 70s. But I'm sorry, you said suspects range age was uh, seven or eight years old? Yes, there were um, cases reported to Los Angeles Police Department that were um, involved youth that were gang involved. Okay. And so those often activate a law enforcement response. Um, These were sexual battery cases. These were inappropriate touching or unwanted Mm -hmm. touching um, that maybe in other jurisdictions wouldn't activate law enforcement. But because these kids were also gang involved, they, you know, reacted in what I would consider to be inappropriately and over, you know, overreacting. Yeah. You had uh, said that the decisions were based on, so if there's a bigger, like a, uh, a, a larger gap between suspect and, and perpetrator age, there's more likely to be an arrest, right? So I guess how, how big did that range get? Okay, let me let me reiterate. So um, we did not look at oh, okay. victim suspect age dyads. Oh, okay. We looked at victim age and suspect age independently. Oh, okay. I see. I see. How, however, Catherine is looking at victim suspect age dyads for her dissertation work as part of her oh, dissertation okay. work my as God. a result of these kind of initial findings. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. My mistake. Um, no, I, it's probably my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that because of everything that's going on, everybody has just, like, I think our brains aren't processing stuff as well. I, I know I'm not, <laughs> for sure. Oh, I, I agree. I can do about four hours of deep work a day, and that's it. <laughs> if I could get four hours of work in a day, I would be so happy. <laughs> well, I'm just a cat mother, so that also plays into that. <laughs> yeah, I've been... I mean, in addition to like the job, job, I I went back to school. I'm I'm in grad school again. Um, for a, um, right now, my master's in creative writing. Um, <gasps> oh my a, god! A push, I'm obsessed. With a push towards, I'm gonna once I finish this, I'm gonna get my MFA. Um, so I'm doing like I have all these screenwriting projects that I'm working on, and like I have a couple of nonfiction pieces out for review, and like all like that whole life has also taken a hit because of the coronavirus and that's like just as frustrating for me yeah um i also do creative writing in my quote-unquote spare time <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah um so we'll have to talk about and that I'm stuff entertaining too. the idea of applying to u of h's uh creative writing mfa program yeah mm-hmm. not now though <laughs> not right now <laughs> I'll, I'll have to give a, a point well would you get like well we'll talk about it later <laughs> Yeah, because I'm I'm obliged to shill um, our our low residency creative writing program. So okay, cool. <laughs> uh, all right. So um, what else? Yeah, what else are you working on that you're excited about? 
So another paper that's in its um, early stages is with a student, Jessica Fleming, who's in her first year as a PhD student. Um, I served on her master's thesis committee as well. And she is looking at the case processing of sexual assault cases that involve complainants who have mental health issues. And so research has long established that mental health, when complainants have mental health issues, that this influences police and prosecutorial decision making. Police are more likely to question victims' credibility when they have mental health issues present. I have a recent 2019 Justice Quarterly paper that looks at um, predicting victim credibility. And in Los Angeles, police were seven times more likely to question a complainant's credibility if there were mental health issues present. And so we know that the way that a victim presents his or herself the if they engage in certain behaviors um, and with mental health specifically being a factor influence the way that these cases traverse the system and so jessica is looking at a subsample of cases again from the large-scale los angeles data um, there are 90 cases in that sample of 944 that had victims with documented mental health issues and so she's looking at those 90 cases and doing kind of more of a, right now we're thinking it's going to be a descriptive case flow model and then a parsimonious model stepwise logistic regression because there's so few cases to kind of just look at, well, what are the factors that result in successful case processing with these victims? And so actually, let me pull up the paper because she just sent me some recent stuff today. So just kind of her initial kind of her initial analyses and just kind of descriptively looking at the data, she found that in these 90 cases that police only made an arrest in 20 of the cases, 27 were unfounded or deemed to be false. Um, 32 were cleared other with no arrest being made, which is this is a kind of nuance of Los Angeles, um, Los Angeles Police Department kind of follows two types of case referrals to the district attorney. Typically an arrest happens and then a case is referred to the district attorney, but in LA they would do a pre-screening um, submission where they would submit the case to the DA and if the DA said no, they would not file, they'd kind of kick it back and no arrest would be made. Mm -hmm. And um, so I may be getting off too much in the weeds right now, but that data, cases that are cleared by arrest are kind of misleading because LAPD would change the case clearance from cleared by arrest to cleared by exceptional means when the district attorney refused to file charges. So, for example, if they made an arrest and then they took it to the DA and the DA said no, instead of clearing it by arrest appropriately by UCR guidelines, they would clear it by exceptional means. That's probably going to be edited out. Um, but so she took the 90 cases and just created kind of a case flow chart to see, you know, where the where attrition is happening in these cases. And attrition is happening at the places you would expect um, at arrest, meaning that very few suspects are arrested. And then at the initial filing stage, um, this is not specific to cases with complainants with mental health issues. This is where attrition typically occurs in sexual assault case processing. Um, but I think uncovering, you know, 
the cases that were successfully prosecuted, what differentiates those cases from the other cases um, that were not successful will make a really good contribution because we know that mental health matters um, or mental illness matters, but we don't really know how these specific cases um, kind of traverse through the system. So I'm curious about like what range of mental health stuff, like is, that, is there anything like that in the reports about like... Yeah, so the, the interesting thing with working with police report data is that everything in the case represents what police identified and what they felt was important to note. And so in these cases, when we're looking at case processing, it doesn't necessarily matter whether the victim did have mental health issues. It matters more if the officer reports that the victim had mental health issues because that report follows the case throughout the entire case's life. And so um, so in these cases, mental health or mental Ill issues, mental health issues is captured whether the officer noted that there was reason to believe that the victim had mental health issues, whether the victim self-disclosed having some sort of mental health issues, whether there was hospital or medical documentation in the police report, um, in the whole police report or case file to indicate mental health issues, or if a witness or family member um, disclosed or reported on behalf of the complainant. So it's interesting because whenever you do case processing research, just because something's documented into the in the case doesn't necessarily mean that that's reality. If a victim engages in alcohol consumption, for example, it doesn't necessarily mean she was inherently engaging in risky behavior. It just means that the police thought that that was something that was worthy to note and important for case processing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm just like I asked because I mean, clearly the majority of law enforcement aren't trained as like without like any kind of like um counseling or or like a background that would give them the ability to diagnose people and so like i i was just wanted to make sure that it was like either somebody's self-disclosing or it's a cop who's just like this person sounds crazy so i'm going to write down that they have mental health problems oh well i mean that that could definitely be it um and it's it's kind of similar to when officers document credibility concerns, it's not necessarily that the victim is not a credible witness. It's what the police perceive. And in the end, police reports, that's what it's capturing. It's capturing what the police perceive. If the police mark African-American on, on the suspect's race box, that may not be what the actual suspect or victim identify it with. Mm -hmm. That is based on officer attitudes and perceptions. Yeah. So is there a way that um, this can be used to improve the case processing process? <laughs> yeah, I mean... We know that police encounter individuals who have mental health issues. Yeah. Police are often described as de facto mental health providers, um, frontline responders in mental health emergencies. Um, you know, street corner psychiatrists is another one. And so we know that they are in, you know, are coming into contact with individuals who have mental health issues. When we talk about sexual assault specifically and victims specifically, it introduces questions about appropriate training in terms of 
appropriate victim, I guess, affect or what they think victim affect should be, um, how victims should respond to a sexual victimization. Um, you know, and it all comes down, I think, to really credibility because mental health, when you look at sexual assault case processing research, mental health variables are typically used to capture credibility, um, credibility concerns. And so trying to think about how, how to answer this in a succinct way. Um, I think that by dismantling rape myths, dismantling misconceptions about the causes, characteristics, and consequences of sexual assault have the potential to have better, better police response. Questions remain whether that type of training is effective. Research finds that, you know, re, um, training of law enforcement as it relates to kind of trauma-informed care and rape myths needs to be not only comprehensive, but frequent and long-term to create organizational change. That we, if you deliver a program, there may be some short-term efficacy, but for there to be that long-term change, it needs to be frequent and consistent and over time to create that institutional change. Did I answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have one yeah. tangent. <laughs> no, this show is all about tangents. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all I'm here for is just tangents. People think okay. that this is a show where I'm like, uh, I mean, really the purpose of the show is that I get to highlight all of this amazing work, but really like selfishly, I get to talk to people who are so much smarter than me. <laughs> that's, oh, please. That's what I get. Listen, I am nobody from nowhere. This is a, a joy for me to be able to talk to, to people like you. Um, so I know that you wanted to talk about mentorship. And I think it's, we oh. should like note that the two papers that you've talked about so far are, are things that you're working on with students or like these are student driven ideas. So, um, what did you want to, to talk about regarding mentorship? It's clearly very important to you. It, it really is. And, you know, I'll admit that in my early career, I was a very selfish researcher. I was very, um, interested in doing a lot of kind of sole authored work, um, lead authored work. Um, within my own, you know, kind of very narrow research agenda. I, of course, would, you know, collaborate with students when they asked. But in terms of making that my kind of primary focus, that's relatively new for me. And that's something that I've really enjoyed over the past year. Um, recently, I inherited a few um, graduate students who kind of changed their research interests and wanted to start doing sexual assault case processing. And they came to me and I had a, you know, six students who wanted to do independent studies. And I thought, well, of course, I'm going to say yes, because I am that type of person. And I was lucky because my chair and my dean supported creating an actual class to support this effort. And so I have six Ph.D. students in a special topics PhD course that looks specifically at sexual assault case processing and then more broadly gender and crime. And this, so that's one, so that's one thing that was kind of a new thing for me. Um, and so I inherited these students and I kind of started to freak out because I am pre-tenure and I, you know, nothing is set in stone. And I worried that if I shifted my attention to, other people's, you know, driven work, other people's first authored ideas that it would somehow I, my research agenda would take a hit. 
And because all I knew up until this point was leading my own research agenda and kind of very narrowly um, collaborating with people, I don't collaborate with a lot of people, I was, I was nervous. However, it's been one of the best experiences I've had. And this past year has opened my eyes to so many things, coming to the realization that the mentorship that we offer PhD students will literally determine their trajectory. And if there's a breakdown in mentorship, then students can fall through the cracks. And, you know, I, my, my primary, you know, my primary student who I've been working with for four years, Catherine Meeker, has had a lot of success. And she was kind of my only student. I was that kind of, you know, the, the professor that people complain about, the person who, you know, only has that one student and dedicates a lot of time to that one student, but doesn't really collaborate with m many other people. Um, but I had these six students who showed really a lot of interest in collaborating with me and I decided to give it a shot. And I just kind of told myself that everything else would be on the back burner, that my, my I would dedicate this academic year to my classes, to teaching my classes and to mentoring the students who wanted my mentorship, whether that be in a graduate capacity or an undergraduate capacity, because we also have these things called honors contracts, which are little mini papers. Um, right. And so the last, my last year has been, it's just been very rewarding. And I think that, this, I guess I want, like, since I know that one of the primary audiences of your podcast are people who are untenured, I just want to really stress how much it has made me a better scholar and a better person and how much I've gotten out of redirecting my focus from a very narrow on my own research agenda to actually helping students pursue theirs. So I'm, I'm curious, did you have like a, like a light bulb kind of moment where you realized that you needed to make this change and how you approached mentorship? Was it just these six students coming to you to, to say that they all wanted to work on this project with you? Or was it, was it something more like, I, I'm curious about like, that transition that you made. Yeah, I think it, I think I did have a light bulb moment. I realized that I already had a very good job that I loved and that I was thriving and doing well and that my research pipeline was full and I was very proud of the work that I had done. And I'm very lucky to have studied under Cassia Spahn, who is one of the most well-known sentencing researchers and sexual assault case processing researchers in the world. And the mentorship that she provided me made me the scholar I am today. And as, as I kind of, you know, as these students came to me and I realized that if they don't get the training for me, where are they going to get it from? And I want them to be able to continue this important work, you know, beyond just what I can contribute. And so I thought I can spend all of this time honing my own research and pursuing my own research ideas, or I can help six students produce theirs and there will actually be more good science out there from a variety of different people. Mm -hmm. And and with that brings like more potential to create policy change and things like that. Right. Like, yeah. And one of the, like, for example, one of the students is a crim um, is a, Oh, I always get this word wrong. A data analyst or a criminalist for Houston police department working, um, testing sexual assault kits 
and has been doing that for 10 years and then came back to school because she um, came back to a PhD program because Rebecca Campbell, who is a very well-known um, professor who and researcher who studies kind of trauma-informed responses, criminal justice responses, sexual victimization, came and talked to Houston Police Department's um, forensic forensic analysts, and she was like, oh, wow, I can create change. And so she came back to school. And so collaborating with her and helping her develop her research agenda has the potential to have a lot of amazing impact because she is in the field. She is working on these cases and she has a direct, you know, direct tie to a huge metropolitan agency. Yeah, that's incredible. (laughs) I'm a lot jealous. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I didn't realize how invigorating it is to be around young scholars who are very enthusiastic about their work. And it has given me so much um, just joy to, you know, to see how excited they are about research. You know, I'm also excited about research, but not with the same kind of like, you know, glean in the eye. Um, And so that's also kept me really invested in my own work. Because their enthusiasm is contagious. I have one student, Brittany Aquaviva, who, I mean, over the course of the last six months has gotten two papers under review and is currently working on an independent research, um, an independent data collection strategy to, um, to look at Me Too um, the introduction of Me Too related topics in the classroom and to talk about kind of the pedagogy of teaching sensitive topics during, you know, this time, this era. And that's just so exciting. Yeah, for sure. For no, sure. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because I, um, I had like a similar kind of uh, like eureka moment with my own mentorship. Um, and I, I would argue now that like you can't call yourself a good teacher without also being a good mentor and a good advisor too. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I don't see any way to disentangle the three because, cer- because certainly students don't themselves. I mean, at least undergraduates don't, you know? Um, and, and so before I forget too, um, the podcast is open to grad students. So if any of your, if any of your PhD students want to come on and talk about their work, I'd be more than happy to, um, host them. Oh, absolutely. They would eat that up. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the the teaching aspect of it, if if that's okay. Um, I'm yeah, al- I'm always curious to hear stories about how people are able to bring their scholarship into the classroom, and especially with people who are researching, like you said, sensitive subjects. Well, I'm really lucky because at my university we have um, a huge faculty over you know thirty tenure tenure track faculty, in addition to an even huger pool of adjuncts. So we have a lot of flexibility. We get to choose what we teach. And so I, you know, have only taught gender and crime, victimology, and societal and institutional responses to sexual victimization. And so all the classes I teach lend themselves to my incorporating, you know, my research into the classroom. I do. Um, I was nervous. Um, so I'm born and raised in Los Angeles and, you know, now currently living in Houston, Texas. It's a huge, um, a huge 
cultural, political, geographical change. I was nervous about the idea of teaching what some people consider to be controversial topics in a primarily conservative um, department where most students have goals of becoming law enforcement officers or correctional officers or kind of working in the field. Mm-hmm. And but I kind of went into this job and decided that I was just going to be my true self. I was going to talk about the things that I thought were important and, you know, let students decide whether they they liked me or not, that I wasn't going to kind of censor myself and, and that I was going to I was going to talk about, you know, sensitive topics and hard topics and students could either self-select into my classes or not. And I was pleasantly surprised at, you know, how receptive most of the students at Sam Houston State University are to the topics that I teach and the kind of approach that I take. And that, you know, in a lecture hall of 200 students, maybe two are adamantly opposed to, you know, my my kind of teaching style, but most are, you know, very open and you know, I, I work really hard to foster an environment that is supportive and accepting and respectful of diverse backgrounds and opinions. And I think that my students know that I have my own kind of professional opinions about a lot of these things, but that they also feel like they have a safe, safe space to kind of voice their own opinions. And so I think that helps. Okay, I, I kind of forgot what the actual question was. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, I, I was curious about how you bring your specific scholarship into the classroom. like, And so usually when I ask people about this, it has to do with, um, like, are there preconceived notions that students have about, like, what you're going to be talking about? And obviously, with sexual assault case processing, I'm sure that you have to, to or are constantly dealing with like all the rape myths and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess with this question, I guess specific to the research you've been talking about, unfortunately, on top of the rape myths, um, is there is there something about like I guess police work or or that type of processing that students just assume is is true um, that you have to spend time trying to correct them on and, and or like something something along those lines. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in my gender and crime class, I often encounter students who are surprised to find out that gender stereotypes also hurt men and that gender stereotypes um, can have detrimental detrimental consequences for for everybody, that it's not just, you know, kind of sexism and misogyny hurting women, of course, more overtly, we can see kind of the detrimental effects of that. But we spend a lot of time talking about how gender stereotypes also hurt young men and young um, men and young men and boys. And so that's kind of the first thing, Um, you know, when students hear the word gender, they think about women or trans folk. When they hear the word sexuality, they think about LGBTQ folk. When they hear the word race, they think about black or Latino or, you know, Asian American folk, and they don't think about the kind of unexamined, you know, white, straight kind of male. They think about all these other things. And so we, we spend a lot of time talking about gender stereotypes specifically as they relate to men. And um, so that is always a huge shock for them that, you know, 
things like just simple language, like boys will be boys. And what does that kind of communicate to young boys about their behavior and what they can do? Um, And so that's always something interesting. And we talk about how, you know, women are more likely to get full custody of their children, um, even if by other measures, maybe the father would be seen as a better caretaker. And we talk about how that is all about gender stereotypes, where we don't provide room for men to be seen as parents. Um, And so that's kind of the first big one is that, oh, wow, men also have a gender. (laughs) Um, You know, they know it, but they don't really they don't really think about it like that. Yeah, I I love that topic. Um, It's a it's a great topic to talk about with undergrads. Um, I remember when I was in my Ph.D. program bringing up like a very similar point to that in, in one of our seminars. And I, I can't remember the class that it was. Um, but I remember saying something like, you know, we're always making assumptions about the contrast categories that we're taught to use. Um, and mm-hmm. just assuming that, and so it's almost like ironic, right? Like a lot of the stuff in the discipline over the last, however many decades has been, we're, we've been encouraged to think about like, and I do this with my students too, right? When they're in their capstones, they always, well, until I complained about it, they copped out on their race measure and would just have like white, non-white. And I would right. say like, you can't just assume that everybody who isn't white has the same experiences. Like that's incredibly um, unscientific and naive and, and whatever. I, I just had a great conversation with um, Tara Sutton on an episode that hasn't come out as of this recording yet about the same thing. Um, just like talking to undergraduates about masculinity and that, like masculinity is really terrible. And, and so it's just, it's just, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that it's, it's fun for me in like a sad kind of way to talk about masculinity in class um, as somebody who presents as very masculine um, and just watch the students, especially the boys in class, just watch their reactions to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another kind of, I guess, misconception that students have coming into the classroom is a lot of my female students overestimate um, how many women currently work in criminal justice professions. I think that they have all, you know, grown up in a very progressive time. Um, You know, by and large, students are way more um, aware of social justice issues, I think. And I I think, um, you know, in relation to things like consent being kind of fluid and gender being fluid and things like that, they just seem to be more kind of just progressive in general. And so they kind of apply that progressive their progressive upbringing to criminal justice which still remains a you know a very androcentric male dominated field and so i have a lot of female students who are interested in becoming law enforcement officers and they're typically shocked to find that you know 12% of american full-time police are female and they they can't believe that the numbers you know in 2020 are still so low and we see higher, you know, higher levels in corrections and the courts, but still, you know, it's around 30 percent. And so that's another thing that I think um, they ne- didn't really consider prior to coming into my class. And then it, you know, it creates obstacles for them because they wonder if they want to be the only woman in a small rural police department. And, you know, so that's another kind of big misconception they come in that kind of you know we've already 
reached equality, you know, and that we see kind of equality everywhere. Um, and so that, that kind of hits them hard too. Those sweet summer sweet children. Summer. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. So what do you tell them then? I mean, do you, do you encourage them to still become law enforcement or is it more like, well, a, it's like a student it, by student basis kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I, my, my opinion on, in-class instruction has also changed a lot over the last four years. Um, I used to think that it was my research that would make the most impact, and now I realize that it is most definitely, you know, my interactions with students who will eventually be law enforcement officers and correctional officers and just working in the system. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I do encourage them to pursue law enforcement if they're, you know, if they're still interested in it, especially students who have taken my class because gender and crime is not, um, it's a, it's an elective, it's not required, um, yet all police officers will come into contact with all different genders. And so I think that, you know, I see that my classroom has the potential to create a lot of impact or to cause a lot of um have a lot of impact because these students will eventually go out into the real world. Um, but I just, you know, tell them that they just need to be aware of the potential obstacles they may face being the maybe only woman or the only gay or the only black officer in a small rural agency. And that, but that their visibility will hopefully increase visibility over time. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I don't I don't know how many students think about themselves as being that sort of like trailblazer. Yes. They don't. And again, because for whatever reason, I, I think a lot have just kind of concluded that we've already reached that equality point. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, absolutely. And I, I'm kinda of curious like how how they got that idea. I, so I, I, I have I two sisters who are college age, um than that one goes to UC Santa Cruz or graduated from UC Santa Cruz and one UC San Diego. So both very kind of left-leaning progressive institutions. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the generation of college students now have grown up in a place where there has been a black president Yeah. where, you know, they, before this, you know, before 45, they kind of saw America as being this like, now more progressive place that there was be you know there's hope and positive change and you know i think they read about the rape reform movement and they see all of these things that have happened but they don't necessarily mean that just because something's on paper or has been implemented that it's actually caused societal change <laughs> yeah um yeah and you know and obama gets a lot of credit too because he wasn't really I mean, a great president in, in a lot of different ways, but from a from a CJ perspective, I mean, they called him the great deporter, you know, like he mm-hmm. he did plenty of things that, again, from a CJ perspective, I, I think he rightly deserves a lot of like criticism for. Yeah. And I think that, you know, criminal justice in particular lags in a lot of, you know, pro- in a lot of progressive, um, you know, related agendas. And I think that students, you know, when they're doing their undergraduate education, don't realize that criminal justice institutions, you know, remain one of the most male dominated fields. Mm -hmm. You know, even though women entered the labor market, you know, in the highest numbers we'd seen in the seventies, it wasn't in 
criminal justice. And so I think that they kind of apply what they know about the world generally to an institution or institutions that still remain to be kind of white androcentric institutions. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that really just speaks to like a need to have students start engaging more with some of the stuff that we're doing in the classroom, but with like a policy or like maybe more of a, I don't want to say overtly political, but in a, in a pragmatically political way, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Like, like just to say like, okay, you know, here is what, not just what the president said, because the president is, you know, obviously a very easy punching bag. And it's not just because of him specifically, but like whoever is in office, I think is an easy punching bag, but also like, here's what your, your state representatives are doing and your state senators are doing. And like even the mayor, right. And, and start thinking about how, what we're doing in the classroom can affect them at the local level and and really like take an all politics as a local kind of angle on it. I heard at some college-wide, university-wide gathering that in all of Texas, Sam Houston State University produces 25% of law enforcement officers. So, so I mean, it is it is a premier destination for for undergraduate criminal justice education in, te- in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, our undergraduate student body alone, just in our major, is over 3,000. And I know you're shaking your head. (laughs) Um, So it's a huge, you know, we have a lot of students and that really motivates me to do a good job in the classroom because I know that, you know, these students are going to go out there and be police officers. A a good proportion of them will be from Sam. Yeah. You have as you have more students in your major than I have at my university. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, my, my criminology program, um, we are one of the biggest, I think right now we're probably technically the biggest in our college and I have 88 majors. Wow. Yep. (laughs) That's yeah. That's like a different world. Yep. I told you I'm nobody from nowhere. (laughs) Well, I have 200 students or I have 181 students in my current undergraduate gender and crime class. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, I think more than I have total. Across yeah. my four classes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's good energy, though. You know, oh, Sam I'm Houston sure. State University has great energy. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. You are actually the second um, Sam Houston faculty member who's been on the on the podcast. Oh, who was the other one? In, in Crim? No, uh, she is a music therapist. Oh, cool. Yeah, Carolyn Moore. One of the very, Ooh, one cool. of the very first episodes that I ever did. Okay, um, cool. I'll listen yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, I wonder if she's still at Sam. Uh, I think she is, yeah. When you saw me looking at my phone before, it was to double-check that it was her. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually my my mentor, when I was at, my first mentor in grad school, because he retired, like, my second year, he, um, his first job was at, at Sam Houston. And he taught, he caught two classes there, and he taught two classes in the prison. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Who's that? Uh, his name was Joseph Jacoby. Okay. No. Yeah. No. Um. He he told me. Yeah. He was there forty years ago. Okay. (laughs) Uh. He. But he told me one of my, like a story that I still tell my students today because he was really interested in prison subculture. Um. And he, um, was fresh out of grad school when he when he was at at Sam Houston, and so he's teaching criminology in the prison, and he had the guys who were incarcerated write their final paper on prison subculture. 
um, and specifically, like, what are different kinds of hustles going on in the prison. Oh, and, cool. And so he, and, and Jacoby, like, it's hard to describe him. Um, he was, he's one of the few men I've ever been, like, legitimately terrified by, which is something for me because I'm, I'm, I mean, you can tell I me mean, kind of from seeing me, I'm six foot four. I'm built like, oh, wow. a, I'm built like a refrigerator. Um, Jacoby <laughs> was maybe like five foot eight, maybe. Um, and he was terrifying. <laughs> he was the scariest dude ever. And then, and so anyway, he, uh, yeah. so he has them, he has the guys incarcerated writing this paper about the different hustles going on and they, they had to write them all by hand, right? Because they weren't allowed typewriters and there were no computers back then. And the last paper he grades says that the hustle that they're running, that this student was running in prison, is that they just wrote all of the papers that Jacoby just read. Oh, <laughs> That's amazing. And so he, I imagine him sitting there and like, and he told us that he, he like, he had to step back for a minute and then he spread out all of the papers and he tried to like analyze the handwriting himself <laughs> and he was, and, and he, he couldn't tell, like, if they were, if they were being truthful or not. And so oh he gave him a hundred. That's amazing. <laughs> like, you either, like, had so much time on, and obviously, like, they have a ton of time on their hands. Um, like, had the time to learn how to ch- not only change your handwriting, but probably to learn how to write ambidextrously. Um, or you just did this to totally mess with me. <laughs> Yeah, either way, that's either, an amazing story. Either way, that's fantastic, and you gave him an A. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jacoby was a, a solid guy. He um, he did a lot of research on corrections um, for most of his career. And he would hire... Um, when he, w- he used to do... I can't, I'm not sure how it was. But I know he would hire people who were... Um, either like today we would say like on the spectrum or had who had like severe mental health or intellectual disabilities as his research mm-hmm. assistants in the community um which was always really cool yeah that is cool like he would he would go way out of his way to to do stuff like that um he also was almost found in contempt of court multiple times which is another thing that i like about him he was one of those professors who would get called as an expert witness a lot oh wow um and i'm not sure how that started um, I guess back then maybe the courts were more willing to to bring in like sociology professors to do that type of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But he, I remember one time he said, because his wife would always go with him whenever he testified, and there was one time where she left the courtroom because she was so convinced that he was going to get found in contempt because he picked a fight with the judge. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was like, this, like the classic, like, I mean, where all of our work, it kind of butts heads with the court, right? Is that the court wants very specific things and we are trained to, to talk in generalizations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jacoby comes in there, like armed with whatever, you know, bag of generalizations he has that day. And the judge is like, no, but like, this has to relate to this specific case and, and blah, blah, blah. And Jacoby just like, let him have it with both barrels. And they were yelling at each other in the courtroom. Oh my god! Yeah, he's lucky he didn't end up in. He was and he was like again, like I said, just like a a below average build, just a, a nice, like, nice guy, but like this very intimidating. There's something about him. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> like I, I can never see myself going in 
<laughs> like picking a fight with the judge. I've come close oh gosh, for like no, jury duty, but never. Be an expert witness. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no. No. Um. Oh yeah, I was trying to remember how we got off on that. Um, just because of the Sam Houston connection. Um. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is something that I talked to a lot of people about on the pod. Because again, I'm just genuinely curious to hear people's perspectives on this is the notion of objectivity. Um, and so like my spiel going into the question is that when I was going through my graduate program, we were hit over the head with the importance of being objective and in our teaching and research. Um, but then this new generation of faculty coming up behind me and even like PhD students behind us would say that objectivity is impossible, um, that it's really a myth. And so I'm just curious to get like people's perspectives on that question of is objectivity a thing that we can do? Like, what's what is its role in your work and in your teaching? If you could talk about that, I love this question. I talk about this with my students a lot, and I think I so I consider myself an activist scholar. A lot of my research, um, I do believe that the personal is political. And I pursue my research agenda because I want to improve the criminal justice response to individuals who have experienced sexual victimization. This is very much a result of my own personal experiences. I am a I don't def, I don't identify with the term survivor, but I've experienced um, sexual victimization and I have um, worked at a rape crisis center when I was an undergrad and master's student. And so very much my research trajectory is very personal. Um, I, when I worked at the rape crisis center, Peace Over Violence, um, as a volunteer, I did that for two years. And I part of my, my responsibility was attending um, hospital doing hospital accompaniments or um, police department accompaniments, meaning that a call would come in and I would go to the site to provide on-site crisis counseling and support for the victim. And I would go to maybe the medical um, the medical exam room and provide support and just witnessing some of the inappropriate ways that law enforcement interacted with. Um, victims. Um, I did not report my own victimization, but it was very, um, it was very frustrating and infuriating. And I can remember like it's only yesterday, one case in particular where um, a victim was homeless and was assaulted in the park. And the officer kept asking her why she was at the park in the middle of the night. And I, you know, had to intervene and say, because that was her home, um, where else do you expect people to to sleep? And, you know, um, at the time I was in my early 20s and, you know, really didn't. Um, and I just knew it was problematic and um, that very much influenced what I researched. So I think right off the bat, um, already my research agenda is very personal. And I tell my students that as long as you pursue your research ethically, um, that the lens with which you pursue that research is completely up to you. A lot of my research um, on police decision-making and prosecutorial decision-making is through the lens of rape culture. 
I understand that police and prosecutors do not operate in a vacuum. They are individuals who have the same misperceptions of sexual assault that the general population has. And it's not that police and prosecutors have overwhelmingly um, inappropriate responses to sexual assault. Their beliefs just mirror the general public. And it's more problematic because they have, you know, a lot of power. But, you know, so a lot of my research does, um, you know, take a very kind of critical feminist approach that I think that some people interpret as being either biased. And I think that that's um, something that is unique to a lot of feminist criminal criminological work. Um, feminists are kind of seen as inherently biased, even though um, that's just not true. But um, so a lot of my research does, you know, draw on rape culture and the ways that which society interacts with rape victims influences the way the police and prosecutors influence victims um, or um, interact with victims. So, you know, I think that as long as you pursue your research ethically, then you won't have problems. I think that problems occur when you start manipulating data to get the answers that maybe you want. Um, you know, I think that that's problematic, but, you know, I have, I have a very recent, um, qualitative piece in criminal justice review that interviewed sex crimes detectives to ask them about their views on quote unquote problematic victims. So how do victims who engage in risk taking, how do victims with a history of sex work, how do these quote unquote problematic victims influence case processing? And overwhelmingly, you know, there was a subset, about a quarter of, you know, detectives said that these victims are inherently lacking credibility, that they don't deserve justice intervention and made victim blaming statements. But the majority made either positive statements like just because someone's a sex worker doesn't mean that they can't be raped. Just because a person is drinking alcohol doesn't mean that that person can't be raped or made more neutral comments saying that, yes, these victims pose obstacles, but that's my job to do a thorough investigation to overcome those obstacles. And so, you know, when the data tell me that police are doing a good job, I report that, you know, um, even though my own personal experiences has been the opposite, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, that's a good question. Is objectivity a goal of mine? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. Um, I want to pursue a research agenda that I think has impact and I want to do it through the lens that I think makes sense and can contribute to the literature. And I want to do that research ethically. Um, And sometimes that means that I call out, you know, the president in my discussion section because I'm not happy with the way that things have turned out. Yeah. And, you know, does that answer your question? (laughs) It does. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. I think we'll stop it there, okay? Okay. Alrighty. Thanks, Andy. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, 
this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.